Well, good morning, everybody. Um, yeah, I think the lights are okay. It's kind of dark. So this morning, we're going to look at the second half of chapter 18 of Genesis. We're continuing on in our look at the life of Abraham. And uh, this message this morning I've titled, Abraham, Friend of God. And I felt that that song was important, partly because of its uplifting, upbeat nature. And we're going to have a few more songs afterwards at our time of worship that follow along in this theme. But as I was looking at this passage that we're going to look at this morning, we know that Abraham is called God's friend or a friend of God elsewhere in Scripture multiple times. And we're going to look at that towards the end of our message this morning. And of course, it's in reference to his whole life. But I thought, if there were any example or any event in Abraham's life that most exemplified him being a friend of God, it might be this one. It might be what we're about to see this morning. And as we get into this, I want you to think about friendships that maybe you've had or currently have in your life. One of my best friends is my friend Jamie from high school. And I don't know if I've ever shared about Jamie with you guys. Jamie and I met about two weeks before sixth grade. My friend Ryan and I had learned that this new kid had moved into the neighborhood. Jamie moved about three houses away from me. And Ryan comes to me in the summertime break before school and he says, hey, there's a new kid that's moved into the neighborhood. Let's, let's go meet him. So we go walking over to Jamie's house, about three or four houses away from mine. And Jamie's out mowing the lawn and his dad is installing a new basketball hoop in the driveway. And so we walk up. He turns the mower off. Ryan and I get to talking to him. And all of a sudden, we just hit it off. I mean, we've just met him for two minutes, and we totally just hit it off. And they had a pool in their backyard, and so he says, okay, mower's still in the middle of the yard, off. He says, you want to come swimming? So Ryan and I are like, okay, we'll come swimming. You know, so we start swimming for the whole afternoon in Jamie's pool. And then as the sun begins to set and it gets getting dark and it's dinner time, Jamie says, hey, you want to spend the night? <laughs> now, Ryan's long gone at this point. And it's just he and I. And uh, so I go back to my parents and my parents were like, let's slow down a little bit. We don't know them yet. You just met him today. That was a couple of weeks before sixth grade. We went to 6th grade together in elementary school. We went to junior high and 7th and 8th grade together. We went to high school together. I talked to him twice this week on the telephone. He still lives in Toledo. I was blessed with the opportunity to officiate his wedding. I've officiated the funeral and memorial services for his grandfather and his grandmother. His parents called me their second son. His grandfather called me a grandson. And to this day, Jamie and I are like this. And I believe firmly that that is going to be a lifelong friendship until we both pass from this life to the next. And we were crazy in high school. We did a lot of things that, you know, you just kind of go, wow, you're lucky to be alive. <laughs> You're lucky to be out of jail. But he gave his life to the Lord after high school and after college. And so I will not only get to be friends with him on this side of heaven, but I'll get to be rejoicing and celebrating with him in heaven with the King of Kings. And there are not a lot of friendships that we have in our lives that are quite like that. You may have some. I have some very, very close friends here in Central Ohio and in this room that I cherish greatly. And I love the bonds that we have. And so this morning, as we think about our passage here in Genesis 18, when God calls Abraham his friend, I want you to think about those friendships that you might have or have had in life where you could finish somebody's sentence. You could trust Somebody with your deepest emotions and information. You knew that they had 
and have your best interests in mind. But they're concerned for your welfare and your reputation and they would go to the mats for you. So anyway, as we get into this, I've kind of broken this down this morning into three sections. And the first thing we're going to see is how Abraham is treated like a friend of God. Abraham is treated like a friend of God. The second section we're going to see is that Abraham behaves like a friend of God or he responds like a friend of God. And then the third thing we're going to see is that Abraham is called a friend of God. He's called a friend of God. So let's look at this first section for a moment. Abraham is treated like a friend of God. You guys might remember that Michael shared with us last week how the Lord came down with his two servants and messengers and they met with Abraham. And as soon as they greeted Abraham, what did he do? He quickly ran and went to the, to the field, to the livestock, grabbed, grabbed a meal, told Sarah, whip up some bread cakes, some curds, and, and threw together a meal to entertain. Friendship. Michael shared with us how that practice of having a meal in ancient Near East culture had great significance. And he reminded us that we do the same today. Think about how often we'll get together with somebody to catch up on life. You want to grab a cup of coffee? Hey, why don't you come over? We'll have, we'll have dinner. Come over to our house. We'll fix dinner for you. Well, how about what we do here to fellowship? We have our monthly gatherings. And we're going to get together on Good Friday and we're going to sup together. That's what friends do. And so Michael reminded us that they did the same back then. And Abraham was very, very intentional to reach out to these guys and welcome them in in an effort to show friendship, which was customary, but certainly because Abraham understood who he was entertaining. And so if we look at verse 16, after this meal, after this time of fellowship, it says, Then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? You know, Michael implied that maybe this time that the Lord spent with Abraham eating wasn't his first and foremost directive in coming down. You see, the cries of Sodom and Gomorrah and the sin had been crying out to God and he comes down to check it out. But in doing so, he privileges Abraham with a time of fellowship. But we get the idea here that maybe the real assignment by the Lord, his real intention was to go address the wickedness that was ramping up, that had been crying out to him in these two cities. And so they stand up. And in verse 17, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's almost as if they stood up they looked over at Sodom, found their ways, and it was like, alright, now it's time to go deal with this. Now it's time to go address this sin. And Abraham's walking with them. He's escorting them. You ever escort somebody out of your house as a gracious act? Maybe walk them out to their car? He's still being a great host and he's kind of walking with them. And the Lord says... Should I hide and keep from Abraham what I'm about to do? Should I keep from my friend what I'm about to do in addressing this sin? And if you look at verses 17 through 19, I believe we get a couple of reasons why God chooses to privilege Abraham with this knowledge of how he's going to address the sin in these cities. Verse 18 says, Since Abraham 
will surely become a great and hot and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. So I said, I think there might be two reasons that God chooses to share this information with Abraham to make him privy to his plans. The first is because God says, I will make Abraham great, and so therefore Abraham deserves to be privy to my plans. We might read this as, I'm not going to keep my plans from Abraham because I've already determined that he is worthy of this information. Your translation probably says in verse 18, since. The NET says, after all. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that an interesting uh, translation? In other words, in light of who God has already declared Abraham to be, Abraham is privileged with these details. You know, God says, since, or after all, I am going to make him into this great nation, so therefore I should share this with him. I am in a covenant relationship with my servant Abraham. Abraham is worthy of these details, so I'm going to share this with him. The second reason, I think, we see in verses 19. I would say that this is because God expects righteousness, and Abraham must witness the consequences of unrighteousness. Verse 19 says that in order for me to fulfill, God says, in order for me to fulfill what I have promised about Abraham, it is imperative that Abraham command his children and his household in the ways of righteousness. You know, understanding what is unrighteous is a large part of understanding what is righteous. Right? Oftentimes, it's just equally important for us to not only understand what is righteous, but also what is unrighteous and the consequences of that. And so, God says here, For I have chosen him in order that he may command his children. So, there's an expectation that God has of Abraham. That he would command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. So God has an expectation of Abraham. He has an expectation that he would walk in righteousness, that he would teach all of his household, his servants, and eventually his children to walk in the ways of righteousness. Abraham, Sarah... Hagar, Ishmael, and all the servants are going to witness the destruction of these two cities. And what comes with them witnessing this is the knowledge beforehand that it's a result of wickedness. Do you see how that works? God's letting them know His plans and what He's about to do with these cities so that when it happens, they go, Oh, it isn't some surprise attack. They understand God is doing this exclusively and expressly to deal with the sin and the wickedness in those cities. And it becomes an important lesson for all of Abraham's household, his children, and everyone. God preemptively shares this so that they understand what is about to happen. I remember in high school as a soccer player, we came up with this great corner kick scheme, this great corner kick play. But it was a little tricky it was legal, but we had to go to the referees and the officials before the game and tell them about this corner kick play that we had so that they would be on board with us. So that they would understand when this takes place, you will understand why and how it plays into the larger scheme and how it satisfies the rules and the spirit of the game. In other words, what we would do is we would have somebody over there who was pretending that they were going to initially take the kick. And we'd have another teammate kind of jogging over lightly, like, oh, no, I'll go ahead and take it for you, okay? And so the one who's standing there at the ball, like he was going to take the kick, would just go, okay. He'd kind of roll it over like that, with just one stroke, roll it over, and the second player, who was faking, coming over to take it, would grab it and dribble it on over to the goal. It was legal. One player touches it, the second player receives it, and now it's fair game. It looked very nonchalant, it looked very casual, and it was designed as a trick play. And the referees, if they did not understand that and did not know beforehand, would have blown the whistle and squelched it. Not a great example, but 
I believe this is partly what we see here, that God is sharing his plans preemptively so that when this destruction happens, they recognize and they know, okay, that is the Lord's judgment and the God is judging the wickedness and the sin of those cities. And he's doing it so that Abraham's household and his children and Abraham himself know to walk in the ways of righteousness and to know what is unrighteous. So God declares that he has to go down and judge the wickedness of these cities. Look at verses 20 and 21. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry which has come to me. And if not, I will know. You know, we have many similar examples of this. God has come down with the express purpose of going and investigating. Now we know God is omniscient. He's all-powerful. He does not need to leave his throne in heaven to come and check out the circumstances. But we see throughout Scripture that he does. Think about Genesis 3. God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and he called to Adam and Eve, Hey, where are you guys? God knows where they are. They were hiding in their sin, but he already knew their actions. So his presence wasn't an inquiry into the circumstances, but rather a need to address their sin. Genesis 4, just shortly after, God says that Abel's blood was crying out to him from the ground. But still, he goes to Cain and says, Hey, where's your brother? Does God not know what happened to Abel? Of course he knows what happens to him. But he approaches with the express purpose of addressing and dealing with the sin. Um, Think about Genesis 6. God privileged Noah with his plan to judge the world for its sin and corruption. Now this wasn't so much about God coming down physically and standing before Noah, but he shared with Noah his plan preemptively so that when it came to fruition, Noah was aware and understood. God said, I'm not going to contend with man's spirit and evil and wickedness forever. How about the Tower of Babel? God says, let us go down and see what's going on down there. He knew. He already understood. But he goes with the express purpose of addressing the sin. Let us go down and see this thing that they're doing and let us confuse their languages. Did you notice in verse 21, it says something kind of interesting at the end. He says, uh, I'll go down and I'll see if they have done entirely according to its outcry which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Isn't that kind of phrase, if not, I will know? Doesn't that kind of throw you for a loop for a moment? I spent some time just kind of thinking about that. and I, I think what we might conclude is that um, God says, I want to go down to the city and see with my own eyes if the outcry of sin that I have heard is accurate. And if not, I will know. Now the NET describes it this way. I like this. Even the Lord, who is well aware of the human capacity to sin, finds it hard to believe that anyone could be as bad as the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah suggests. That's what the NET says. Even the Lord, who is well aware of man's capacity to sin, still feels like it's hard to believe that anyone could be as bad as the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 3. Keep your finger in Genesis, of course. And turn with me to Isaiah chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 9 to 11. Isaiah chapter 3, verses 9 and 11. We get another reference here to the sin of Sodom. Verse 9 says, The expression of their faces bears witness against them, and they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Say to the righteous that it will go well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their actions. But woe to the wicked, it will go badly with him, for what he deserves will be done to him. This is what God is addressing at Sodom. And and Isaiah says, 
that they display their sin like Sodom. In other words, they don't even conceal it. They don't even bother to hide it anymore. The next couple of passages in Genesis, let's look back to Genesis, we won't necessarily read them, but the next couple of passages in Genesis, when we learn about God going down to Sodom, they don't even try to hide their sin in the slightest. I mean, it's wicked. And it's almost as though this comment about, then I will know, I, you know, I really want to see if it's as bad as I think it is, and then I will know, is almost like when the Lord goes, there's one last opportunity for repentance. When the Lord goes, there's one last opportunity for them to see the error of their ways and repent. But of course, they do nothing of the sort, not even remotely recognizing that it's God incarnate or that it is His messengers. And what they desire to do is entirely wicked. And so again, this isn't God not being aware of the circumstances and not knowing the gravity of the sin and the wickedness, but rather an, an implication or an indication that maybe there's still a chance that His presence could in some way, shape, or form lead to a change of heart and a change of attitude for the wicked. That's always the case with God. God always wants that none should perish and that all should come into a saving relationship with Him. He is long-suffering. Peter reminds us that. God is slow to anger and He's slow, not in the ways that we think He's slow, but He's desiring that He would hold His judgment and His wrath until every last soul, if it might be possible, would come to Him. But we see nothing like that happen in Sodom. And so, the first thing that we see here in this passage is that God treats Abraham like a friend by including him in his plans. Aren't you excited to share with your friends what's going on in your life? Aren't you excited to give your friends updates on Facebook? Hey, here's, here's what we've been doing. Aren't you excited to share what you're going to do? Hey, we're going on vacation. Hey, we're going to do... This is, what, this is something the Lord did in my life. We have our time of sharing at the end of our services where we share praise reports and how we see the Lord moving in our lives as in means of fellowship. God treats Abraham like a friend by including him in his plans regarding Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is first and foremost rooted in who God called Abraham to be. God doesn't really need Abraham's friendship, but he chooses to establish this friendship with him. You know, God doesn't really need our love, but he chooses to love us so that we might love him in return. First John says that we love because what? He first loved us. What a great blessing. What a great promise. What a great truth to celebrate. And God knew that Abraham could be trusted as his friend. And what we're going to see here now coming up is how Abraham responds to the information. How does Abraham respond to this information that God has privileged him with, with his plans? Look at verses 22 to 35. It says, Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, Abraham says, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham answered and said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. I, I know I'm on uh, uh, slippery ground here. I know I'm on thin ice. But Lord, if you will, if you'll hear me once more, I'm just dust and ashes compared to you. But suppose the fifty righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? He said, I won't destroy it if I find 45 there. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose 40 are found there. And he said, Well, I won't do it on account of the 40. And then in verse 30, Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I won't do it if I find 30 there. 
And then Abraham said, And now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord one more time. Suppose twenty are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the twenty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry. I shall speak only this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed. And Abraham returned to his place. And so what we see there in verse 23, the first thing, as the messengers head down there to Sodom, it says that Abraham still hung back with the Lord. The Lord was still standing there with Abraham. And what does Abraham do? He comes close. He draws near. He gets in close with the Lord. And now you may say, well, okay, I mean, you know, let's try not to make you know, a lot of content out of nothing. But I believe Moses includes this for a reason. I believe that every detail that we're given is given for a reason. God is not arbitrary in what he shares with us. We get this distinct image and permission and acceptance by God for Abraham to come in and entertain a dialogue with him. I mean, so often we see in the Psalms and we see in Scripture, you know, this plea that God, you know, would hear our prayers and that the Lord inclines to the psalmist or the prayer. It's always this direction, God inclining to us. And here we have an example of Abraham inclining to the Lord, drawing close to him because of the friendship. Because God himself has permitted Abraham to come close. And I want to make sure that we don't see this as unholy, irreverent, or a misplaced confidence by Abraham. I don't believe we see that at all. Look at what he says as he's dialoguing with the Lord. Oh Lord, I believe and I know that I'm like dust and ashes in your presence. And I don't even deserve to be asking you of these things, but I know that you're hearing me and we're in fellowship together. You've told me about your plans and now I want to talk to you about those. And he says, if I could speak to you just one more time, if I could ask just one more time, I know I'm pressing my luck, Lord. So we don't get this image that Abraham is boldly, confidently, and irreverently and unholy approaching the Lord. He still understands the relationship. He still understands who's in charge. And in verses 23 through 25, Abraham expresses his concern for God's plan. Wait, Lord, you're going to destroy these cities. Okay, I'm, 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 alright, I'm kind of coming to grips with this. But what if there are good people down there? These are big cities, Lord. What if there are some good people down there? Are you saying that you would actually wipe out those good people in your judgment of the wicked? Well, that's not the kind of God you are, Lord. That's not your character. That's not who you are. You're a just judge. You would never do that. Far be it from you to do such a thing, Abraham says to the Lord. And what's interesting here is that we see Abraham operating as a type of Christ. You've heard us talk about that terminology before. But in the Old Testament, we have a Christ-like motif that shows up in individuals. The kinsman redeemer in Ruth was a type of Christ. He foreshadowed what Jesus would come to do for us. Moses becomes a type of Christ. David was a type of Christ. Here, Abraham, I believe, is operating as a type of Christ. For a couple different reasons. One, you have the obvious that he's in a way interceding on behalf of those who might be righteous, the few, if any, in Sodom. But he's clearly operating as a type of Christ as he intercedes with his concern for God's character and God's reputation. Jesus said that I have come to reveal the Father and I don't do anything other than what the Father communicates to me. Jesus did not operate independently and autonomously. He was in perfect communion with God the Father and the Holy Spirit and they operate in concert with each other. Perfectly. Not independently, not autonomously. And so here, what you have is you have Abraham showing and revealing this utter concern for the character of God and who God is. And so he operates as a type of Christ. And we see this in other examples. Um, In the interest of time, I I won't take you there right now, but you can write these down. Exodus 32, 9-14, Moses shows great concern for God's reputation among the nations. You know, that was when God was basically going to wipe out the Israelites 
And Moses says, no, don't do that, Lord. Because the other nations will see it. Egypt will see it. They will know that you brought us out of Egypt and then all you did was light us up. What's that going to say about your reputation, God? Moses is clearly and utterly concerned for the character of God and the reputation of God among the pagan nations. What would they say? And then later on, there's another time where God says, I just want to wipe them all out. I want to start over with you, Moses. That was in Numbers 14. Numbers 14, 11 through 23. His concern was, what would the nations conclude? Moses literally says, you brought us up out of Egypt. You intended to take us into this promised land. And what the nations will conclude is that you couldn't do it. That you failed to bring us into this promised land and therefore just lit us up in the desert. And Moses is given the opportunity by God, sort of, not that God would do this, but to start over. To start over with one man. And Moses rejects that because he's utterly concerned about the reputation of God. And so here, Abraham's intercession is not so much a plea for Sodom, it's a plea for God's just character and reputation. Abraham is pleading as a friend of God, not as a friend of Sodom. You know, and Abraham is not asking God to spare Sodom and its unrighteousness. He's saying, rather, don't destroy the righteous with the unrighteous. So the second thing we see this morning, in this passage, is how Abraham responds or behaves like a friend. So God treated Abraham like a friend in making him privy to his plans. And Abraham's response to this information is to behave and operate and respond like a friend. God, far be it from you. That's not who you are. You know, our closest friends show a genuine concern for us and our reputations. I kind of mentioned that earlier. Our closest friends show a genuine concern for our witness of God, don't they? You know, if you see a brother or sister in Christ that you're close with, and you see them operating in a way that does not bring honor and glory to God or compromises their witness or brings defamation on Jesus himself, you're going to address that, aren't you? Our closest friends care about that when they see that in us. They are concerned about how we look in the eyes of the world in the eyes of fellow believers and how our actions may or may not line up with Scripture. And our most cherished friendships are the ones which are reciprocal and we know each other's dedication to us. Isn't that what God is seeing in his friend Abraham? What a neat reciprocation there. Isn't that what you cherish in your friendships? How many of us really enjoy one-way friendships? Are too many hands raised here. You don't enjoy being the only one, you know, a constant one direction, but you cherish and you embrace and you love a reciprocity. And so the third thing that we'll see here this morning, that as a result of all this, and of course Abraham's life at large, he is called a friend of God by God himself. Abraham is called a friend of God. Turn to Second Chronicles verse chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Second Chronicles chapter 20. We'll begin in verse 5 and we'll go to verse 7. The text tells us, Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. Anybody all of a sudden think of uh, Batman and Robin? And Robin, you say, jumping Jehoshaphat. (laughs) Verse 6. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, art thou not God in the heavens? And art thou not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? Isn't that beautiful? Jehoshaphat is reminding God in their time of need as the enemies are surrounding them, 
God, did you not do this? And did you not drive out the people of this land for your people, Israel, and give it to the descendants of Abraham, who you have called your friend forever? You know, a literal rendering or translation of friend there is probably more like um, one whom God loves. Abraham was one loved by God forever. Turn to Isaiah 41. We're going to look at Isaiah, and then we're going to jump to James and John after this in the New Testament. Isaiah chapter 41. Forty-one verses, maybe just eight through ten or so. Here, God is reminding Israel of His loyalty and His covenant to Abraham. God says, "But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts, and said to you, you are my servant.'" I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend. Isn't that beautiful? Turn with me to James. James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. James writes this. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Isn't that beautiful? James tells us that as a friend, Abraham believed God. As a friend, Abraham obeyed God. As a friend, Abraham was declared righteous by God and as a friend Abraham's actions worked in tandem with his faith to reveal this friendship with God. Abraham's faith and his actions together revealed his friendship with God. And did you notice as we were looking at Abraham's plea with God did God actually change his plan? No. What changed? Abraham's prayer. Abraham's understanding of the situation. God shifted the details of Abraham's plea, but not God's plan. I don't believe that we can conclude that God's mind was changed. I think some in the contemporary church misunderstand that God's plan and his will was changed through this discourse with Abraham, but I don't believe that's what took place. I believe God knew the conditions of Sodom and Gomorrah, knew the inhabitants, knew how many righteous and unrighteous were there. But what we see through the course of this dialogue with the Lord was that Abraham now understands that Sodom is so wicked, there might not even be ten people in the entire city who have any regard for the Lord whatsoever. That's what God allowed to take place through the dialogue. That's what God promoted and privileged Abraham with. It wasn't changing his plan. It was, I'm going to entertain this dialogue with my friend. And in the end, he will come to the understanding that there might not even be ten who are righteous in both of those cities because they are so bad. Is this not what Jesus promised to his disciples and by extension has also promised to us? You say, well, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Well, our last couple of passages. Turn to John. Turn to the Gospel of John. And I'm going to kind of highlight this for us for a second. John chapter 15. 
through the course of prayer and pleading with the Lord, Abraham's prayer changed, not God's plan. And in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 12, Jesus says this to his disciples, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for who? His friends. And then he goes on to say, You are my what? Friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. So in other words, in verse 15, what Jesus reveals to his disciples is he says, Now I call you friends because why I'm sharing my plans with you. I have shared the plans of the Father with you. I no longer call you slaves and servants. I call you my friends because I have made God's plans privy and known to you. I have included you and made you a part of what we are doing on this side of heaven. I mean, isn't that not how God spoke to Abraham? I will share what I am going to do with my servant Abraham because he is my friend. Verse 16a here in John chapter 15. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. How was Abraham to become the father of many nations? To have descendants as numerous as the stars, as the sands of the sea? It was God's choosing of Abraham. Not Abraham choosing God. God chose Abraham out of all the nations of the world and says, I choose you and I'm going to keep you unto myself and make you into a great nation. And Jesus says to his disciples, You didn't choose me. I chose you. Verse 16b, Jesus says to his disciples, And I appointed you to go bear fruit. So I have chosen you, and now I have appointed you to go bear fruit. Didn't God call Abraham and command Abraham to command his children to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness? So God chooses Abraham and picks him. Abraham didn't choose God. And then God says, I have commanded you to command your children in the ways of righteousness. Fruit. I have commanded you, Abraham, to go bear fruit as part of my plan. And then the last thing, 16c. Jesus says to his disciples, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Well, Abraham pleaded with God first in a manner that was consistent with God's character. We're going to come back to this. But secondly, in a manner that was consistent with God's will. In other words, we don't get to just simply ask Jesus anything we want and slap the bumper sticker on the back in your name. How often do we pray like that? How often do we pray somewhat selfishly, Lord, give me what I want, because I think I deserve this, I think I need this, I think my circumstances warrant this, in your name. In Jesus' name. Bumper sticker, right on there. Put it on the end so it will happen. That's not what Jesus is saying here at all. You see, Abraham didn't get to do that. God changed Abraham's prayer so that it would then ultimately align with God's will and God's plan. God's expectation of us in our time of prayer is that our will shall be changed to align with His will and His heart and His plan. Now sometimes we get it right out of the gate. Sometimes our will in our prayer time, is perfectly aligned with what the Lord wants. That's great. But there are other times where it's not. And the course and the discourse and the process of prayer and communion with the Lord is designed so that the Holy Spirit ultimately works in our hearts and convicts us that our prayer changes to match what the Lord wants. So that our will now aligns with His will. Look at John chapter 14. Just a chapter over. We're in 15. Look at John chapter 14, verses 13 through 15. Chapter 14, verses 13 through 15. Jesus says, And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 
If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Now, what's the caveat there? Whatever you ask in my name that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So the point, the point of asking in Jesus' name is so that God may be glorified. So when we are asking anything in the name of Jesus that is not going to glorify God, not part of His plan, not part of His directive, it isn't going to happen. I don't say that to discourage us. I don't say that to put a wet blanket on your prayer time. I'm simply saying that the process of prayer with God is designed to change our will and match it to His. So we don't get to just ask anything with the bumper sticker. I'm going to share an example with you as we pull this together. I may have shared this example with you before. I don't know. Uh, in 1998, in December, uh, December 4th, it was a Friday evening. My mom had been battling cancer for about six months. She had kidney cancer. And on Friday evening, she was up and about. There were carolers that had come to the door. She was doing okay, but her hair was gone. She had been suffering from the radiation, the chemo. She was getting weaker. And I had a great time of fellowship with her. And as I was driving home that night, only ten minutes away, the Lord said to me, you have not yet prayed that my will would be done in your mom's life. Now six or seven months up at the Cleveland Clinic, we've been praying that God would heal her. We've been praying that the surgeons would do what they could do and that the Lord would supernaturally, miraculously return her to good health and remove all the cancer. That's what you have to pray. I believe that God is honored when we pray that. There's nothing wrong with praying for healing. We do that here at the end of our services on behalf of each other. Nothing wrong with that. But the difference is, for me, for six or seven months, I had been praying that prayer, but I wasn't quite okay with God doing anything He wanted in that situation. I don't believe that God was dishonored by me praying for her healing, but I believe He was dishonored by me not being open to the fact that she might not be healed on this side of heaven. And so on Friday night, I got home and I went, wow, you know, Lord, I, I, I have not prayed that your will be done. I'd said it, but I hadn't meant it. I hadn't meant, Lord, if you're not going to heal her and you actually want to take her home, I'm okay with that. I hadn't done that yet. And so I prayed that that night. Next Saturday, the next morning, her health was such that she only had the strength to stay on the one floor. The night before, she had been upstairs to the front door and had had the carolers. Saturday, she hung out on one floor because of her strength. Sunday, she was relegated to one room. And Sunday evening, she passed away. I had prayed that prayer, and God, through my dialogue with Him, changed my heart and caused me to have a prayer that was now, Your will be done because I'm actually okay with it. I wasn't before. Lord, I didn't want you to destroy the city at all because there could be some righteous there. But now I'm okay and now I realize there might not even be ten. I finally became okay with God saying, no, I'm taking her home. He always knew when he was taking her home. He always knew that Sunday night was the time. But he changed me and he made me okay with that. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, Friendship creates a measure of equality between the persons concerned. And he goes on to say, I say that not absolute quality is at all necessary to friendship. We said that earlier, that Abraham and God were not equals. Spurgeon says, For a great king may have a firm friend and one of the least of his subjects. But the tendency is towards an equalizing of the two friends. The one comes down gladly and the other rises up in sympathy. And friendship begets fellowship. And this bridges over the dividing gulf. 
Isn't that wonderful? Friendship begets fellowship, and this bridges over the dividing gulf. Proverbs 18.24 says, There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We read that Jesus said, There is no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. God laid down his life so we could be called friends of God. God laid down his life so we could be given his Holy Spirit to help us discern his will. God laid down his life so we could receive an eternal inheritance just like he promised to Abraham. God calls you and I friends. Not because we're equal, but because we are loved by God and he shares his will with us and he shares his plans with us. So our challenge might be the perspective and understanding that we have of our friendship with God. Do we take this friendship for granted as though nothing is required of us? You don't like being in a friendship with somebody else up here where they don't do anything. We aren't friends with somebody when it's consistently and constantly one way. It's a relationship drain. How do we think God feels when we treat Him the same way? How do we expect our Or how do we expect to pray prayers that are consistent with His will if we never spend time communing with Him? You know, one of the ways that you're able to finish your best friend's sentence is because you've racked up a lot of time with that friend. You know that friend inside and out. You're like this. How do we expect to have prayers that align with God's will if we don't spend time with Him and learn how to finish His sentences? And then the last thing I'll challenge us with maybe is do we mistakenly think too highly of ourselves as though we're equal with God? You know, Abraham knew his place and he humbled himself when he pled with God. Do we sometimes forget that just because he calls us friend that this doesn't mean that we're equal? Do we fail to come humbly before God recognizing that our self-righteousness is like filthy rags to Him? On our best day, on our most righteous day, it is still like filthy rags to the Lord. And so as our closing, I'll just remind us that God has called us friends because He laid down His life for us. And our responsibility now is to respond like Abraham did as God's friend. Amen.